This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. What's up, everybody? My name is Kevin. I'm the lead pastor here at Vortex. It's good to have you. What an awesome morning. I mean, it's so stinking cold outside, all right? We're uh, really close to the time change, so that means it's obnoxiously early. And and look at you, packed house at the 9 o'clock. I mean, that's awesome. That's an awesome thing right there. So thank you guys for coming out and being here. We're uh, right in the middle of this series that we've called All In. And man, I don't, I, it, every once in a while we do a series, and I know it's going to be good, but it just surprises me, like the level of feedback that we get and the messages as they come and how really impactful they are. It's been one of those series over the past few weeks you've been challenged. I believe that God's doing something through this and we're going to continue in that today. I have one more week and we've really saved one of my favorite preachers in the whole country uh, for the last, that's uh, Pastor Dan Stahlbaum. He's my pastor. He's the pastor of East Coast Christian Church in Merritt Island, Florida. Uh, I'm so lucky that when I ask him to come, he comes. And so he's going to be here next week. If you know him, you know it's going to be good. And then listen, we've got a series coming up after this that we're calling Horrible Advice. All right? Um, you, you really don't want to miss it. Like, we're going to tell you, like, how to ruin your finances and how to ruin your marriage. I mean, we're, gonna, we're just going to give you some bad advice because, listen, the world is filled with bad advice, but how many of y'all know that God's Word is filled with good advice? All right? So that's what we're going to do for the next few weeks. Uh, today, I, let, let me just say why I think this series has been so important. All right? I, when we approach this series, really, it was from this general understanding that I, that I have as we uh, approach life in general, that so many of us are struggling in life. I see many of you really not living in the peace that you should have, not living in the satisfaction that you should have, not living in what God has promised for you. And I know that for many of us, the reason that that is, is that we're not wholeheartedly all in to God. See, the problem with being half-hearted is that when you're half-heartedly invested into the life that God wants you to live, you get none of the benefits. You get none of it. It's not a lot like life. Like in life, if we picked a retirement plan and we half-heartedly invested into it, we're going to get a half-hearted return on that. But with the things of God, if we're not all in, we don't get it. All of the benefits, everything that's attached to what God wants to do in your life, we get none of it. See, God doesn't want half-hearted Christians. He doesn't want half-hearted followers. As a matter of fact, think about it. Can you actually be a half-hearted follower? You can't. Imagine somebody sitting at the starting line saying, you know what, I'm going to follow you, but I'm going to leave one foot behind that line. You're not going to get very far, are you? So in the very beginning of Revelation, I think the, the text shows us as Jesus is speaking to different churches, He speaks to this church, the church of Laodicea, which is actually described as being a very faithful church. Like they seem to be the church that does exactly what God would have them to do. But I want you to see how he describes them in Revelation chapter 3. I know you inside and out. Look at what he says. And I find little to my liking. You're not cold. You're not hot. Far better to be either cold or hot. You're stale. You're stagnant, and you make me want to vomit. 
mean, y'all ever went and got some coffee? And it's all hot and perfect. Listen, I like my coffee. I don't know anybody in here that doesn't like coffee, but I, I'm just going to say that up front. I love coffee. All right, you ever go get your nice, perfect cup of coffee? You sweeten it the way it should be? And then somebody starts talking to you. You get a phone call. And you go back just a few minutes later, and that coffee that was the perfect temperature is now lukewarm, and you go to take a drink of it. That ever happened to you? It's horrible, isn't it? You don't want that coffee then. And you don't want to go stick it in the microwave because that's no good. See, the thing is, is that God says that I would rather you be hot or cold. Half-hearted doesn't work. And there's so many of us that have been half-heartedly invested into the things of God. And we keep saying, where is the peace that I should have? Where is the hope that I should have? Where is it? And God is sitting back saying, the problem is not in the promises. The problem is in your devotion to the God of the promises. So today what I want to do is I want to go to John chapter 4. And in John chapter 4, we see a passage of scripture that I'm going to really camp out in for most of this morning. It's really set up as Jesus gets word that the Pharisees are upset with him that he is baptizing more people now than John the Baptist. It's one of those like hearsay kind of things. People done started running their mouth about Jesus. They ever started running their mouth about you? It's happened before, I'm sure. And Jesus decides to do what he would later instruct us to do. I'm not going to send a messenger. I'm actually going to go talk to them face to face. But the problem is, is that Jesus is in Judea and the quarrel has erupted in Galilee. Now I want you to see this map if we have it. Do we have it? Jesus is in Judea down here in Jerusalem and the problem has erupted near Nazareth in Galilee. You see, for a Jew, this was a conundrum because in between those two places is a place called Samaria. See, Samaritans, the people of Samaria, were half-breeds. Ethnically, they were the kind of people that they don't want to be around at all. Now, I know none of us have those kind of people. All right? I know we don't have those kind of people that we don't want to be around. That's not the way our church is, right? But see, the, the, the good folks of Judea wouldn't go through Samaria. As a matter of fact, they would add another day to the journey by crossing the Jordan River and going up and going around Samaria to completely avoid the place that ethnically was unclean to them. Because I know none of us will avoid that part of town that's filled with those people we don't want to be around. That's exactly what they would do. But see, Jesus, Jesus decides to go through Samaria. And in this decision, everything is about to change. As they're traveling along, they come to a place that's very historically influential for the Jewish people of his day. Jesus stops at the well of Jacob. It's about noon. He sends his disciples to find some lunch. And about that time, a woman comes up to draw some water from the well. Now, that seems insignificant to us, but for those who know something about this, that most people would have showed up in the morning to draw their water. There's something different about this woman. And so Jesus asks her, would you give me some water, please? She's like, why are you, you're, you're a Jewish dude. 
Jews don't talk to Samaritans. Why are you asking me for water? He goes, well, you know, if you knew who was asking you for water, you would, you would say, hey, could you just give me water because I know you have living water. And she goes, you have living water? I would never have to drink again. Can I have some of that? And he goes, well, why don't you go get your husband? Come back, we'll talk about it. Well, sir, I don't have any husband. And then Jesus says, that's right, you don't. You had four husbands, and the man you're living with right now ain't your husband. She's like, the most absurd comment in all of scripture. Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. (laughs) Yes, yes I am. And she goes on to say, you know, I, the people here believe that one day a Messiah is coming. And Jesus looks at her. This woman who has had a sexual addiction, who has been used by men, who is now being just a live-in supply, who is so ashamed she can't go in the morning to get the water. Jesus looks at her and says, in verse 26, I am the Messiah. One of the first times that Jesus in Scripture is blatantly open about who he is. So right about that time, the disciples return. The woman probably scared now that she's surrounded by a bunch of Jewish men, leaves. And Jesus is about to have a conversation with his disciples that I hope will radically reshape the way that we think about the way that we're living right now. See, they come back. He sent them off to go get some food. And they go, Jesus, why don't you eat the food we brought? And he's like, you know, in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to finish his work. That's my food. So when I do the will of God, I want you to know, guys, guys, I'm not real hungry. You saw me talking to that woman when you walked up. I'm not hungry right now because there is some deep satisfaction that is happening on the inside right now because I was doing what God wanted me to do. Now, I know that she's a woman, and it's really outside of customs for me to be talking openly in the middle of the day with a woman. That would actually be seen as coming on to her. And I realize that she's a Samaritan. She's a half-breed. She's someone that most of you consider less than human. But yes, I was talking to her. It was the will of God that I talked to her. And right now, inside of me, inside of me, there is something that is satisfying my body that's far greater than food. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me. And then he shifts gears on them and starts to talk about the harvest. And I want you to see what he says in the very next verse. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? But behold, (laughs) I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white with harvest. I love that verse. Because honestly, that's one of the verses that the Lord used to really convince me that we were to move back to Albemarle and start this church. I was driving down Highway 73. I was looking at a house to the right. Wasn't even paying attention to anything. I know, all right, I'm supposed to be looking at the road when I'm driving, okay? Just forgive me for a minute, okay? So I'm looking over to the right, and the Lord speaks that verse into me. And I look to the left, and there's a cotton field, massive, white for the harvest. And God reminded me that 
that moment that there was something that had been planted and prepared that was ready for the harvest here in Stanley County. I love that verse. But I want you to think about what Jesus says. He says, behold, lift up your eyes and look. I mean, could he be any more redundant? I mean, behold means to look. And you just stop right there. Lift up your eyes and look. In three different ways, Jesus, in that short little sentence, is saying, hey, listen, you're not looking at the right things. You're not looking at the right things. This past week, I went hiking at Mora Mountain, and I noticed this about myself. I don't know if you ever noticed this, but when the journey gets hard, we look down. Because we want to make sure that our foot lands in the right place. And Jesus says something here, no, 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 lift up your eyes and look. See, I don't know if you know this about me, but I played football in high school. I was not very good. As a matter of fact, my parents forbid me to play. And so it wasn't until I was old enough that I could make the decision for myself that I started playing. I knew nothing about football when I got to play football. And I can remember the first few days of hitting. I must have looked like a total idiot out there. As a matter of fact, I, I must have been the most ungifted football player maybe in the history of Stanley County. As a matter of fact, I, when I actually had the privilege later on to coach football, I was a much better coach than I was a player. But I remember telling our students, I was like, you know, hey, I still hold a record here at South Stanley. They're like, what? I know, I do. I got to carry the ball one time. I fumbled it. It was returned 47 yards for a touchdown. And so in, in the football, in the stats, in the next day, in the Stanley News and Press, it came out as me having carried the ball one time for 40, negative 47 yards. I was like, I only got to carry it one time. That's my per carry average is negative 47 yards. It's never going to be worse than that for anybody else. But I can remember those first few days of hitting. And, uh, and, you know, you think, you think when you go play football, it's just like you just run at somebody and you throw your body at them and then you knock them down, right? I didn't know, right? There's technique involved in tackling, and I can remember those opening days of drills. And my coach, his name was Charles Phillips. Charles was scary. He was back in the day when football coaches were still scary. And when I've coached, the kids weren't scared of us, but, but I was scared of him. He was somewhere between like a pit bull and a chihuahua because when he got really angry, his eyes popped out of his head a little bit. And we were in, we were in tackling drills, and, and I, I, I must have just totally blown it. And I'm laying on the ground, and he comes and picks me up by the shoulder pass and puts me on my knees. Boy, that's not how you hit. All right? So he stands me up. And he gets about 15 yards from me. And he comes at me. Oh, good Lord, what's going on? And he tackles me. Head into the sternum. Wrapped up. Drive through. And I'm laying in the ground and he's standing over me. And he looks at me and he says, boy, don't you lower your head when you hit somebody. It'll hurt you. Keep your head up. See, I think maybe, maybe today, Jesus is here because he wants to talk to us. That in life, if we keep our head down, we'll get hurt. 
Which is why in that moment, that pivotal moment with his disciples, Jesus is going to say, no, stop. Behold. And lift up your eyes. Because the fields are white for harvest. So I want to point out three things that we need to lift up our eyes and see today. The first thing is that we need to lift up our eyes and see the opportunity that lies right in front of us. We need to lift up our eyes and you need to see the opportunities that lie right in front of you. You see, far too often, we like to identify God's will by the destination that he has called us to. In my arena, which is ministry, that often happens by people saying, I want to be a pastor, I want to plant a church, I want to be a worship leader, I want to do a worship album, I want to be a kid's pastor, whatever that is in your arena. It might be that I want to be a principal someday, I'm a teacher, but I want to be a principal. Or maybe it's that I want to be the boss, I want to be a plant supervisor, whatever it is. That people will identify God's will by the destination. But here's the thing. If he's the God of everything, then he's the God of every step in between now and where he's called you to go. And so many of us look at the step that we're in right now and we say there's no way that this is God's will. But the opportunity lies right in front of you. We see a great illustration of this in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus tells a story when he is questioned by a lawyer. This lawyer says, Jesus, can you tell me what the most important things to do are? And Jesus says, well, simple. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> Which I think for all of us, we'd be like, all right, that's good. But this guy, this guy decides to push Jesus a little bit. Oh, Jesus, who is my neighbor? See, Jesus, I'm a lawyer. I'm a cosmopolitan man. I don't have just one house. I have three. And I travel from house to house depending on which season it is. As a matter of fact, I may be on vacation several weeks out of the year. Who is my neighbor, Jesus? So Jesus decides to tell him a story. He tells a story about a man who is robbed on a road. The implication of the story is that this is a Jewish man. He's beaten, left at almost near death. And along the road comes a couple people, a priest and a Levite. I mean, you can think about this as like the pastor and the worship leader. They come along the road, and here is this man who's beaten and hemorrhaging in the middle of the road, and they see him, and they walk around him. They avoid him. They don't want to touch him. He's unclean. No, I got a sermon to preach. I got a song to lead. And then Jesus says, now a Samaritan man comes along. Understand his audience is Jewish. They would think of a Samaritan as being a half-breed, less than human, ethnically um, offensive to who they were. Along comes a Samaritan, and the Samaritan comes face to face. Look at what it says in Luke 10, verse 33. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and look at this. When he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. 
So the Samaritan takes up the man who was beaten, takes him to a hotel, bandages his wounds, pays for him to be taken care of, and comes back even later at great cost to himself to pay all the wages that would have been needed to be leveraged for this man's well-being. And then Jesus, in that spiritual samurai move, goes, now who is the neighbor? (laughs) And the lawyer is left with no other answer but the Samaritan. You see, in that moment, two people were faced with the opportunity that said, no, I'm not going to take advantage of the opportunity that's right here because I have a destination that's far beyond that. God's called me to preach a message. God called me to go to temple and lead worship. I'm not going to get involved in this mess right in front of me. But the Samaritan did. And that Samaritan connects to what Jesus says is one of the deepest, most significant things that we could ever do in life, to love our neighbor as ourself. You see, this is exactly what happens when Jesus makes the decision not to go around, but to go through Samaria. Because when they go into Samaria, they come face to face with a woman that's going to change everything. See, I want you to see number two, that we need to lift up our eyes and see the moment and seize the opportunity. We must see the moment for what it is, and then we must be willing to seize the opportunity that lies inside of that moment. Isn't that what the Samaritan man on the road did? He recognized that there was need, that there was brokenness, there was woundedness, and I had the capacity to meet it. And actually, it's exactly what Jesus is going to start talking about as he begins to expound what this harvest that he's talking about to these Jewish men in the middle of despised Samaria. So in John chapter 4, now in verse 37, he says this, you know this saying, one plants and another harvest? Well, it's true. And I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant and others had already done the work and now you will get to gather the harvest you know that speaks to a truth that from the very beginning I've been aware of that there are men that I've met who have come to me who have pastored in our county for years have come to me with tears in their eyes I've, I've been praying for something like this for years. I can still remember that moment when I sat down with the first group of pastors that were here. And I said, here's what God's calling me to do. We're going to move back. We're going to start a church. And one of them, one of them just broke down and started crying. I've been praying for that. I've been praying for somebody like you to get that kind of vision and to come here and do something like this. See, there are people who have prayed for you, prayed for our city, who planted seeds long before we ever got here. But deep within that passage, as Jesus is talking about planting and reaping, there's also a truth that's very difficult that some of us don't like very much. And that's that some of us will plant and will never harvest. Some of us will plant seeds and never be able to really fully experience the harvest. There are some that come along and plant. 
See, look at what Ecclesiastes says. In Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 and 2, it says there's a season for everything, a time to plant and a time to harvest. You see, the thing is, is that we have to be observant as to what the moment is. You can never have a harvest if you don't seize the moment when you should plant. You can never have a harvest when you won't seize the moment to plant. And I'm thankful that men from years gone by prayed over our city, wept over our city, and y'all know prayers never die. And those prayers continued to move the heart of God, and now God is doing something powerful through this church in our city. You see, in that moment when Jesus approaches this woman, she is the last one on the list of candidates to carry the message of the gospel. All right? She is what I heard one preacher when I was young describe her as a loose woman, which I, I think is a funny way to describe her. Um, she's, she's got a problem with men, all right? Obviously, Jesus talking to her is a big deal. But not just that, but they're ethnically separated as she is a Samaritan and he is a Jew. I mean, it's really, she's got to be close to the bottom of the list of candidates to carry the gospel. But something happens. When she leaves Jesus and his followers, she goes back to the city and begins to share that she had met somebody. And this guy was different. And he saw her and found value in her. And then she returns with a bunch of people. And look at what they said in John 4, verse 42. They said to the woman, listen, they're not talking to Jesus. They're talking to her. Now we believe not just because of what you told us, but because we heard him ourselves. And now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. You see, something's going to happen in Samaria right then. Something that's going to echo throughout the rest of history that's still reverberating in this room today. There's going to be a revival. Jesus is going to get delayed in his little intervention to go up and deal with some folks that was talking about him. All right, People are going to start to come to Jesus and Samaria. They're actually going to have to camp out in the Holiday Inn. Can you imagine right, being a disciple at this moment? Like these, Jesus, we're not even, these people are outside. They're not supposed, but, but here they, they're, they're receiving you. They're responding to you. And it's obvious that you love them. There's something going on here. So they would spend a few more days in Samaria as Jesus would minister to people that the church thought was outside because they were willing to see the moment for what it was and to seize the opportunity. You see, the third thing that I think God wants us to lift up our eyes and see today is he wants us to see that generosity engages us in God's mission generosity engages us in the mission of God. And there's a certain kind of generosity that we see all throughout this story. 
See, God's plan is for you to be generous. God wants us to be generous. It's a huge component, but it's a, it's a part of us going all in. Like if we go all in, we can't help but be generous. The God who gave us everything, how could we go all in to follow him and not become generous ourselves? But see, the thing is, is that generosity is not just this plan that God has so that you would share the wealth among the world. God's plan for generosity is so that when he blesses you, blessings don't stop with you. Because if God blesses you and blessings stop with you, eventually you're going to become full and fat and sick. Because that's what happens when there's a reservoir that has no outlet. As a matter of fact, this is echoed in the Bible. Look at Proverbs eleven twenty four: Give freely and become more wealthy. Be stingy. And lose everything. Think about the Samaritan. Along that road with the man who was beaten and bloody right in front of him. He was willing to give everything that it would take to meet the opportunity that lay right in front of him. He was willing to be generous. And his generous connected him to the will of God. That he would be a neighbor. That he would be the kind of friend. That he would be the kind of person that God would have all of us to be. Because it's impossible to be that way without being generous. So I want to read a passage of scripture that comes out of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Just to set the table on this, I want you to understand that we're talking about a group of people that, that in Corinth are, are very wealthy, affluent, and they're being written to by the Apostle Paul uh, in what is probably considered to be the fourth letter to the church in Corinth in, in the second one that is recorded in Scripture. And he's telling them about something that has happened in another church in Macedonia. I want you to see what happens as he talks about generosity. Now, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles. And they are very poor. But they are also filled with abundant joy, which is overflowed in rich generosity. They are filled with an abundant joy that has overflowed into rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did so in their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. Because that's what they're giving. There's a, a, a need at the church in, Jer in Jerusalem. And they're giving collectively throughout all the churches. to do that. And did, they did even more than we had hoped for their first action. This is why it's such a big deal. For their first action was to give themselves to the Lord. They went all in just as God wanted them to. They went all in. They couldn't help but be generous. They went all in. So look, this is, I think, the part of the letter that I think we need to hear. Because as a church like ours that we have such great teaching and, and worship and so many gifted people, look at what it says. Since you excel in so many ways, in your faith and your gifted speakers and your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and even your love from us. I want you also to excel in this gracious act of giving. You see, it's impossible to go all in or to be wholehearted and not be generous. 
It's impossible. It's impossible to sit at the starting line and say, God, I want you to make me more like you. God, I want, I, I want to follow you. You just come and change my life. Do whatever you want to do inside of me. God, I'm, I'm here. But hey, I'm going to hold on to all the resources that you gave me. I'm going to give you one step. And so many of us are dealing with financial turmoil in our lives. So, so many of us. We've never went all in to the way that God wants you to live financially. You're never going to experience the benefits that are connected to that when you're only half-heartedly following him. You see, there's a different kind of generosity that's associated with planting and with reaping. It's a different kind. Think about it. We live in a rural community. We know what it's like to plant and to sow. We know what it's like to harvest and to reap. There's a different kind of generosity that's associated with both. Obviously, we have to buy the seed. We have to spend the time putting it into the ground. We have to break up the ground first. We have to do all the work to prepare. And then at the very end, we have to purchase the equipment. We have to spend the time. We have to hire the laborers to harvest all that has grown. There's a generosity found in both sides. When it comes to the future of our church, there are some of you that will plant seeds that you will never be able to experience the harvest. And I don't know about you, but that makes me excited. It makes me excited to think that I can give to something right now that God is going to continue to grow for the future and then in the future there's going to be something that God takes and transforms and does something amazing through it that I'll never get to see. Because I realize that if I see everything, it's pretty small. But there's a harvest that we're also going to be a part of and I want you to see what Jesus says in John 4 about planting and harvesting look at this what joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike you see when we get our eyes off of ourselves and we lift up our eyes to see the opportunities that lie in front of us. And we commit to God not just to see them, but to respond to them. To seize the moment something happens. And our lives are transformed. Because something happens inside of us. I don't know if you realize this. You know what you have to do to lift up your eyes? You have to stop. You have to stop. See, so many of us have gotten caught up in the destination that we're denying ourselves the privilege of the journey. And right now, in the midst of this moment, I think God is saying, Don't keep your head down, press pause. Lift up your eyes and see what lies in front of you. Because church, I can tell you right now that this 9 o'clock service is not the end of what God wants to do through our church. That there are more people, there are lost people, there are broken families that need to be healed. There's hope that needs to be distributed. There's restoration that God wants to do. And it's not just here right now. 
we can lift up our eyes and see. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.